Beloved, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, as we consider this uh, very non-controversial question, what is election and predestination? Uh, My prayer for uh, all of us tonight, whether here or via live stream, is that if there uh, are... um, uh, erroneous uh, thoughts in our minds about God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, that the Lord would, would, would clear them out, would clear out the furniture and replace it with new furniture uh, that is according to God's word, that the Lord would help us uh, to be comforted by this doctrine, for that's what this is. It's not meant to be a brick to be thrown through the window uh, of rabid Calvinists, um, who are zealous uh, and should be put in a cage, as we call them, cage-stage Calvinists. Um, but it's meant to be a doctrine for, for the comfort of God's people, uh, that the Lord is sovereign and He's drawing His people to Himself, and we can rest our head on the pillow of His sovereignty uh, at night and trust Him. Well, I encourage you now to please stand as we read from Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, your word which is truth. Would you sanctify us by your truth? Would you give us right thoughts of God and of ourselves and of the work that you are doing through your spirit and word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote that Ephesians gives every listener a panoramic view of the wondrous and glorious work of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. A panoramic view of the wondrous and glorious work of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus uh, from a Roman prison between the years 60 and 62 AD. It was written to be an encyclical or a circular uh, letter to be read by, to all the congregations in Ephesus and the surrounding region in Asia Minor, uh, and of course to be read uh, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina in uh, the year 2022. Uh, this book is about the church. This book is, a, is to the church, and it's about the church. Number one, how God saves the church. Number two, how God nourishes and strengthens and builds up the church. And number three, how God calls his church to live as his redeemed children. Of course, Ephesians chapters one through three uh, teach us all of these glorious indicatives about who man is, who God is, and how God saves uh, sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapters four through six, we really have an exposition of how to live the Christian life in light of our union with Christ as an outworking and fruit of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's keep in mind that Paul did not write this letter to 
theologians. It doesn't say to the church at Ephesus and to all the academicians and high-level theologians with lots of letters after their name. You would think that this doctrine uh, would only be for those who uh, have read Augustine and have thought through all of these very challenging ideas, but it's not. It's written to the church. It's written to ordinary Christians who are uh, called to hear the Word of God proclaimed in all of its richness and fullness about who God is and how He works. And so he didn't write this to a bunch of seasoned theologians. He wrote it to regular congregations, to ordinary Christians in the pew. God wants all of us this evening to consider the doctrines of election and predestination. For they are indeed meant to teach us something important about God, about us, and about where our confidence and our comfort ought to lie. So you'll see uh, the outline in your bulletin, uh, if you would like to follow along there. Our first point deals with, specifically, election, uh, God's sovereign pleasure and uh, God's sovereign pleasure, purpose, and choice. Look with me at verse 3. Look with me at verse 3 again. It says there, even as God, even as God, uh, in fact, verse 4, even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Notice the verse there. Even as God chose us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here we see what God has done and why he has done it. He has chosen us in Christ. There's that union with Christ language that we see all throughout these verses. This is one sentence in the Greek, verses 3 through 14. It's, a, it's an inspired, um, run-on sentence. And it is for the church that we would see how God, the Holy Trinity, is saving his, his people. He chose us in Christ before time, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. The Greek word, eklektos, is where the doctrine of election gets its name. It is the form the verb form, rather, of eklektos, which is translated here, he chose. He chose. There are two obvious things that are taught in this verse. Number one, that God chose his elect for salvation. They did not choose him. God chose the elect for salvation. They did not choose him. Secondly, God chose his elect before the world was created. Let's think of all, first of all, about point one. God chose his elect for salvation. They did not choose him. This really should not be a surprise statement to those who are familiar with their Bibles. Indeed, God exercises his sovereign choice and carries out his sovereign purpose all over the scriptures. Abraham, Abraham, God chose Abraham from the nation of the Ur of the Chaldeans to be the unworthy recipient of his covenant promise that he would be a father to many nations and through his seed would come the promised Messiah. Why him and not another? God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice. God elected Abraham to be a recipient of his saving grace through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. Did Abraham have reason to boast? We learned this morning from Romans chapter 4, that important point that Abraham did not earn his salvation through good works, because if he did, then that would mean that he received his wages for what he was due. But that's not it at all. We see Paul quoting Genesis 15.6, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Abraham didn't earn his salvation through good works. He believed the promise and he was saved. And he only believed because he was given a new heart and drawn to the Lord. God elected Abraham to be a recipient of his saving grace through faith and an instrument of blessing to a great multitude. God also chose Israel, the nation of Israel, to be the recipient of his promises of his ordinances. Why did God choose Israel to be his people? Those to whom he would reveal his law and promises? Not because they were a particularly large nation or an exceptionally moral one. No, we learn why God chose Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. This language is so clear and illuminating when it comes to God's sovereign choice of those to whom he will reveal himself. Verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. In other words, you are sanctified, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand that is out of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." These verses we learn that God chooses because he loves. He chooses because he loves, period, full stop. And that love is not expressed because of any spiritual health in us. God does not look down upon humanity and say, oh, what lovely people those folks are. What a wonderful person that is man or woman or boy or girl is. Oh, no. He does not look upon our spiritual health, but rather he loves us unconditionally. And it flows from his infinite grace and sovereign pleasure and purpose. Another important text that underscores God's sovereign choice is in Romans 9, verse 6 and following, the Jacob and Esau passage. Over the years, when folks have struggled with the doctrine of election, I'll often have them read this text out loud. Sometimes, mid-reading, they look at me and say, I didn't realize this was in the Bible. Or I've never looked at it this way. I remember some time ago hearing a pastor say, you know, one thing that's really a blessing about being reformed is that We don't need to be afraid of any passage in the Bible. Are there passages that are hard, that are difficult to understand? Well, of course. But we don't need to be be afraid of them because they all fit beautifully under this banner of the sovereignty of God. Romans 9 and verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, Paul writes. Again, Romans 9, 6 and following. Verse 7. And not, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? asked Paul. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And just to make it clear, Pharaoh was not a warm-hearted, godly man whom God hardened. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened and God hardened it even further to bring about his will and purpose on the earth. Part of his judgment. See this in Romans 1 as well, don't we? Paul writes, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles? Both of these men came from the same womb. Both of these men came from the same womb. Both of them were marked with the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Both of them were great sinners. But only Jacob was an object of God's grace and mercy. Esau was left in his own sin and unbelief and rebellion, fully culpable, fully accountable to God. Both of them Jacob and Esau fully deserved God's condemnation, but one of them was chosen to be spared from it. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, hardening the heart that is already hard towards him. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions and sin. You don't turn off a light that's already off. You don't make dead something that's already dead. So we see from these examples from Scripture, of which there are many more, that God elects some and not others. He chooses some and not others. He elects some and passes over others, leaving them in their sin and rebellion. In Peter's first letter to his readers... He says to them, to those who are elect. And in John's second letter, he addresses the elect lady. All over the Bible, we can't help but see God's sovereign electing hand. God's purpose is eternal, and it cannot be thwarted. The Puritan John Barlow wrote this, quote, Whom he chooseth shall be created, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, because his purpose cannot be altered, his promise revoked, end quote. Which brings us to the second thing we learn from Ephesians 1.4, namely that God chose his elect before the foundation of the world. Look with me again at verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says that we are saved by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the eternal covenant. We considered this during Advent, didn't we? Considering this great covenant that was made even before time between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that covenant of redemption, whereby God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit pacted or covenanted to save a sinful people for his own glory. It was an eternal covenant. 
fave, a rebellious people, a pactum salutis. Who are those people? Those whom the Father set his love and affection upon even before time. Those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, we hear Jesus described as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Salvation is God's eternal purpose, underscoring God's eternal plan to redeem his elect. Perhaps one of the clearest statements on God's eternal election, however, is found in Acts 13.48. In Acts 13.48, where Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about the Gentiles saying, quote, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Our own confession speaks several places of the sovereignty of God in election. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 20, the question is asked, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So, beloved, election is according to God's sovereign pleasure, purpose, and choice. Now, what I always find interesting is there are many who believe that they are more merciful than God, that they are nicer than God, that, some, that they are more fair than God. I think about some of the things that I hear people say in the world. Sometimes it even come out of the mouths of people within the wider church. And there is a strong sense of justice. We're made in the image of God. We have a sense of justice. And, so, and oftentimes I think, I'm glad that person is not God because if they were, many, there would be so fewer people that would receive mercy if that person were God and if God were God. God is a God of mercy. He is a God who takes pleasure in giving out grace upon grace, abundant mercy in and through his son, whom he sent into the world to die for wretched sinners like us. The Lord could have let us all justly die in our sin, sin which we choose, sin which we engage in, rebellion that we engage in against God. God could have left us in our sin and made us all reprobates, but he didn't. And he sent his son into the world save us from what we deserve. Never forget seeing a clip from a courtroom many years ago. It stuck in my mind because it was so chilling. Of a woman who just lost her daughter. Her daughter was a senior in college out in San Diego County. She was off on a run and a man jumped out of the bushes, beat her, raped her, and killed her. This man was sitting in front of her, and she was allowed, as victims' parents are allowed to do in our system, to speak to the man. And the words he said to her are understandable because of the pain, the anger, the hurt, the devastation of of something like this happening to one of your loved ones. But I couldn't help but think about how her words were just chilling. There was no room for mercy. She said to him, I hope that you burn in the lowest levels of hell forever and ever and ever. And language like that for about five minutes. 
And I think about that when I think about the doctrine of God's mercy, God's sovereignty. Would those who claim to have more fairness than God or more mercy than God have more mercy and fairness, as it were, than God? Well, I think not. I am thankful that God is sovereign and that none of you are. I am thankful that God is sovereign and that I am not. I am thankful that God is sovereign and no dictator or ruler overseas or here in this nation is God. I'm thankful that the Democratic Party is not God. I'm thankful that the Republican Party is not God. I'm thankful that libertarians aren't God. I'm thankful that nobody is God but God. Amen? And I am thankful that he is a God who doesn't just give us what is fair. We don't want fair, dear ones. Trust me. We don't want to stand before God and say, I want fair. Because fair places us with the goats who perish in their rebellion and sin. We have collectively rebelled against sovereign God. We have raised our collective fist against him. Dead in Adam, slaves to sin, loving our sin and saying no to God and yes to, to autonomy and, and, and the idols in my life. And that's where John Payne was in 1991 in a jail cell in Pickens County, South Carolina, after having just gotten in a terrible drunk driving accident, sitting in a holding cell with a man laying in his vomit. And that is where the fruit of my life led me. And I was in that cell, having heard the promises of God my whole life. And the sovereign God had mercy on me. He gave me a new heart. He drew me to himself. I was Lazarus in the tomb, and he called me to life. And that is what he does. And it's what he's done in your lives. By his grace, if you are in him, trusting in him by grace, through faith. I'm thankful that he is sovereign, because if he wasn't sovereign, and he didn't elect me unto himself, I would be in a very different place than in this pulpit right now and confessing Christ. And the same goes with you. Which is why we should be slow to, be, to quickly condemn and to be harsh and hypercritical when we understand that, but for the grace of God, that is me. That is you. So we have, of course, righteous anger about things, but we also have compassion, sympathy, and we're prayerful towards those who are lost. We are called to love our enemies. The last time I checked my Bible, to pray for them, to pray for those who persecute us, even as we valiantly defend the truth and proclaim the truth. Well, this brings us to point number two, predestination, the unshakable foundation of grace. Look with me again at verse four, verses four, five, and 11. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been what? Predestined. This isn't the um, Presbyterian version of the Bible either. This is the Bible that we all have from the Greek. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will couple of things I want us to notice here. First of all, God elects us unto holiness 
and predestined us unto adoption. He elects us unto holiness. He predestines us unto adoption. Beloved, election and predestination are a means to an end. They are a means to an end, namely that the bride of Christ would be without spot or wrinkle at his glorious return. I read this morning from Revelation 21, that beautiful picture of that heavenly Jerusalem coming down in the new heavens and the new earth, adorned like a bride. What a, what, what a picture. Is there any vision more glorious than a bride coming down the aisle? Notice in verse 5 that it states that we are predestined unto adoption. Too often people refer to predestination in cold, harsh, severe terms. But here in God's word, we are taught not only that predestination finds its origin in the profound and infinite depths of God's love, in love he predestined, but also that it is for the sovereign means to the, to the glorious end of adoption. It is the sovereign means to the glorious end of adoption. He predestined us, notice, for adoption. What child who is in a desperate situation and a loving family comes and adopts that child and the child finds out later that it was all planned and purposed that the adoption would take place, would somehow say, wait a minute! Wait just a minute. I wanted to be the one who made this decision. Who chose you? Oh, no. This adoption that we receive, this spiritual adoption into the family of God is what we've been predestined unto, and we rejoice in it to the praise of God's glorious grace. Notice that refrain over and over in verses 3 through 14, to the praise of of his glorious grace. That's what all of this is for. Sometimes people say, well, I, I just don't understand election and predestination. I can't fully comprehend it. Well, join the club. Nobody can fully comprehend it, but we apprehend it. I like to use the example of, of, of the airplane. You know, I, I, I'd like to kind of glance in, probably you do too, glance into the, the cockpit. Um, first, you look for some gray hair on the pilot. And then you look at all those dials, and it's, oh my goodness. I hope that guy knows what he's doing, or that girl knows what she's doing. Past week, I was getting off an airplane, and I said, thank you, sir. And he said, John Payne? And it was one of my old youth. No gray hair. One of my old youth, when I was a youth pastor in an Atlanta area, flying the airplane, I felt kind of old. But this is what's so glorious about Ephesians 1. It highlights the blessed, mysterious sovereignty of God it highlights the saving purpose of the Father, decreed before time. It highlights the saving work of the Son, accomplished in time. And it highlights the saving work of the Spirit, who applies the work of Christ to God's elect. Notice in verse 7, it says, In him that is in Christ we have, been, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. It's through his righteous life, perfectly obeying God's law, that, that, that when we are brought into union with Christ, our sins are forgiven, fully pardoned, Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us and we stand before God redeemed and justified. 
no longer an outcast, but brought near and adopted into God's family. The Father predestines, plans, purposes, and chooses. He sends His Son into the world to accomplish that redemption through His blood. And then the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit into the world to apply that work that Christ accomplished for our redemption. What are some objections to this? Perhaps some of these have risen in your mind. Well, some of you may be thinking, God foreknows, and then he elects. He foreknows. They point to Romans 8, 29 and 30, where foreknowledge is listed before predestined. Some believe in election, but think that God looks into the future, sees who will respond to his overtures of love, and then elects them. He looks through the microscope, through the portals of time, and he sees this lovely person who is exercising faith or has some goodness in them, and then he chooses them. Well, that's not what we see the Apostle Paul saying right in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. There is no health in us. So when he looks through the portals of time, as it were, he doesn't do that. He just, time is his creature. He looks down upon all of it. All he sees are wretched sinners who are dead in their transgressions and sins and who need his sovereign grace to be saved. Foreknowledge is simply another way of speaking about God's undeserved love and affection for sinners whom he chooses, not his foreknowledge of their goodness and their implicit faith. Secondly, some say this is not fair. As I mentioned before, we don't want fair. Fair is that we all perish and go to hell for our sins. We don't want fair. We want sovereign mercy. We don't want fair. We want sovereign mercy. We don't want cold justice. We want divine grace. Fair means we all get what we deserve. Grace and mercy through Christ means that we don't get what we deserve. Namely, forgiveness and righteousness and everlasting life. This was the declaration of Paul and the apostles and, of course, of Christ himself. The third objection, and by the way, I made all these objections right after I became a Christian for about a year. And I was fighting against all my Reformed and Presbyterian friends. The third reason that I gave also is there's no reason for evangelism. Oh, God is sovereign? (laughs) No reason to evangelize. Forget about that. No, that's not a right way to think about this. You see, God ordains the means as well as the ends of salvation. He ordains the means. His means of saving his elect is the proclamation of his word and the administration of his sacraments. He could have chosen other means to lead his people to Christ, but he chose, he ordained, he appointed preaching, water, bread, and wine, and the shepherding ministry of the church. This is how he has chosen to draw to himself his elect to save them and to nourish them in that salvation and to bring them to glory. This is why we have confidence in the means of grace and why we don't have other kinds of means like smoke machines and all other kinds of worldly apparatuses because we trust in the appointed means of grace that God himself has appointed and has promised to bless for the salvation of the elect. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And the strategy for how he will build his church is found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching all that I commanded, Christ said, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it is through the word of Christ that he is saving his people. 1 Peter 1.23-25 says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now listen to what he says. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
some will bring up the objection that there are contradictory verses. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ooh. Sounds like a verse that contradicts everything we've just considered this evening. Upon first glance, it seems to contradict it. To say that God does not choose some and not others, and he desires that all of mankind go to heaven, that, that it's his purpose for that, that, that all should reach repentance. This view espouses that all men are inherently free moral agents capable of choosing Christ and that those who do not will perish. What's interesting about this, and I give my Arminian friends a hard time about this, as I say, when you pray for a lost family member, do you pray this? Lord, change their heart, but not too much. Make sure that that they themselves have a say and they are a part of this, this, this change of heart. No, what do you pray? Lord, change their heart. Give them a new heart. Raise them to life. The very prayers of Arminians would contradict what it is that they actually deep down believe, and that is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You see, in order to understand this verse properly, and we need to understand its context, and so much sloppy theology is done because context is not taken into consideration. We must first ask the question, who was Peter writing to? The answer is found in verse 1. Those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so Peter is writing to Christians this verse. In other words, Peter, as he's writing to Christians, he's not just writing to the general public. Secondly, we must notice that this verse states that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his purpose, or his promise, rather. What promise is that, one might ask? Well, it's the promise of his coming judgment. You see, many false teachers were scoffing at the idea of Christ's return and his coming judgment, as we see from the verses which precede this text. Peter was encouraging the believers to remember that God is patient towards his elect, not wishing that any of his elect will perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. In other words, God will save the full number of his elect In his perfect time, when the last one is saved, he will indeed return to gather his people and judge the wicked. The words any and all in this text refer not to all people, but specifically to God's elect. Remember John 6, 37 and following. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, shall come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 and 3 and 6 says this, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He gave himself as a ransom for all. You understand, universalists use these verses. Universalists use these verses. But the Bible's use of the word all, in the words of one theologian, quote, oftentimes means not all men without exception, but all men without distinction. In other words, please hear this, the word all in the Bible doesn't always refer to every single person, but sometimes refers to different types of people. The all in this verse clearly means the latter. It is, the teach, it is teaching us that God will not just save the Jews, but he will also save the Gentiles. And many Jews had a hard time with this, which is why it is clearly set forth here. How about 1 Timothy 4.10, another verse that seems to contradict For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. First of all, as we employ the regular fidei, that is comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know 
that this verse does not teach that God saves everyone. It's not teaching universalism. So what does it mean? Well, it means one of two things. Number one, that God is the Savior of all people in a preserving common grace sort of way. That is, that he doesn't send a flood every couple hundred years to destroy the world, but grants blessings common to all, sunshine, rain, marriage, happiness in this life. However, even though God is the Savior in a preserving sense, in that way, he is the Savior of believers in a saving way. That's one way of looking at this, this distinction. The second one is that God is the Savior not of all every, but of all kinds of people, that is, all races and nationalities, especially of those who believe. Personally, I think the second explanation makes better sense. Well, as we conclude this evening, let us with humble and contrite hearts believe in God's sovereign election and predestination. May we not fight against it with preconceived notions of how we think God should be or how we think God should work. Let us not seek to conform God to our image. God is not an American. Can I say that again? God is not an American. He's not a democracy. God is the sovereign king of the universe. He reigns and rules over all. Let us not seek to conform God to our image. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Pastor, this is hard to understand. Yes, it is. Impossible to fully understand. But once again, we do not comprehend it, but we apprehend it. We take hold of it more and more as we get to know this God and we read the scriptures and we pray and we see the way he is working in our lives and we begin to trust him with all things and we rejoice and celebrate and are comforted in this great doctrine of election and predestination. You know, if we are the ones who secured our own salvation, then there is that possibility that we will be the ones to undo it. What a terrible thing to live with. What a wonderful thing to live with that on the best day I live as a Christian and on the worst day I live as a Christian, God loves me exactly the same. A loving and a patient father with me forever. Let us joyfully accept what is clearly taught in Scripture. One of my professors, I've quoted him before on this, would say in, in, in systematic theology class, as he was teaching on this subject of the sovereignty of God and election and predestination, he said, you know, sometimes we have to just believe what the Bible says and let our emotions catch up with that. Because this is true. Let us joyfully accept what is clearly taught in Scripture, sublime doctrines which are meant to comfort God's people with the knowledge that the salvation of God's elect was purposed before time, accomplished in time by Jesus Christ, and applied to the lives of God's elect by the Holy Spirit through faith. What did Jesus say over and over in his public ministry? Lord, Father, I have come to do your what? Your will. John chapter 6. Father, I have come for those whom you have given me. And of those whom I have come for, I will lose not one. Christ was not hanging on the cross thinking, oh, I hope this isn't for nothing. I hope this isn't all just a waste of time. No, when he was dying on the cross, he was dying for those whom the Father had given him confidence, knowing the mission had been accomplished. It is finished. Can't pretend to know who are God's elect, except it becomes at times very obvious when there's that confession of faith, that commitment to the church, Fruits of righteousness. In Second Peter, we are encouraged to make your calling and election sure, not more sure in God's eyes, but more sure in our hearts. Because when we are living for the Lord, we have a sense that we are the 
the Lord's. When we live for the world and for idols and we get caught up in sin, secret sin and duplicity, we begin, our assurance of salvation begins to, begins to debilitate. And rightly so. Because when we are living according to God's word, we are showing forth the fruit of righteousness and evidencing that calling and election. All of God's sovereign saving action is grounded in his infinite, incomprehensible love. A love which, according to his own pleasure, chose to save you from the depths of hell and to make you his redeemed child. I believe it would be fitting for us to conclude then this evening with that great section of Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, verses which teach the confidence and assurance that these blessed doctrines are meant by God to instill in the lives of God's children. And think about this, Romans 8, now write this down, this is brilliant. Romans 8 is before Romans 9. Think about this. Romans 8, one of the most glorious chapters, comforting chapters about the work of the Spirit and salvation that God will never leave us is right before Romans chapter 9, which is all about God's sovereign election. The two are not contradictory. They are very much in tandem. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious majestic doctrines of election and predestination. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord over all, and we thank you that you have set your love and affection upon us and have drawn us to yourself, given us the gift of faith that we would rest in Christ alone for our salvation. We thank you that in Christ we are forgiven, that in him we are robed in the very righteousness of God, and that we stand before you justified and have been given an eternal inheritance, and even now are sealed with the Holy Spirit is who is a down payment for that blessed eternal inheritance. Oh Lord, we pray that we would find our identity in Christ alone and that we would walk in him for his glory in obedience to your word, knowing that we are saved by sovereign grace. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.